It is uh, July 30th, 2020, and it is 12 p.m. in New York City, 6 p.m. in Johannesburg, on Cairo, 5 p.m. in Lagos, 7 p.m. in Nairobi. Um, this is episode four of AIC, AIC Talk, Africa's a Country Talk, our new live stream show. I'm Sean Jacobs, the editor of Africa's a Country. And if you've been watching us from episode one, you may notice glitches, but we're working them out. Um, and I would recommend that you check out our previous shows where we were joined by Paul T. Clark, who's an anthropologist, who talked a lot about police brutality with us. And then we had Wangui Kamari, who's based in Nairobi. She talked about um, the deep depression. I mean, that's the best way to summarize it of post-colonial politics in Kenya. And so today I'm joined again by my usual um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to call him sidekick anymore. He's like a fixture now, I think, in episode four, Will Shoki. Um, he's our staff writer. He's based in Johannesburg. Um, and I'm also joined by uh, Grief Chelwa, who is a contributing editor. Um, and he's based uh, he's based in uh, in Cape Town in South Africa. Grief is originally from Zambia. Um, I'm going to, at some point in this program, Grief's going to have a chance to tell us his life story. Um, but for now, I think the best way to just start things off, like, how are you guys doing? I mean, I, I'll start off quickly by saying I'm somewhere in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York in a small town called Otigo. I know this is very unusual for people to hear this. Um, this is what people do in the summer. Yeah, you try to get out of the city if you can afford it. I just want to make that clear. Not everybody can do that. There's definitely an issue of class here. So I'm in Otigo, New York, which is close to a university called SUNY Onionta, which is a public university close by. Um, and I'm in the be uh, very beautiful surroundings. It's raining here today. And this is the thing I want to ask Will and, and Grieve about just about how you're doing, which is that the number of people who are infected with COVID here, I think it's almost like zero in this little town. Like upstate New York um, had been saved from all the calamities and the crisis that we had with public services uh, downstate in uh, New York City. So how are you guys doing? I mean, I'm I'm okay. Whoever wants um, to go, I'd let I'd let grieve grieve answer because maybe he's having a better time than me. So it'll be good to start in a on a cheerful note. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's first things first, man. It's nice to see you guys. It's nice to finally be on this uh, great show. I mean, I've watched the other episodes. I've been incredibly educative, incredibly entertaining. So I'm I'm lucky to be a guest. Um, so, I mean, I'm doing well, as anyone can be doing in these sort of unique circumstances. Um, you know, as you've been following the news, Sean, your hometown, Cape Town, or your home country, South Africa, things aren't looking so good COVID-wise. Uh, so cases seem to be going up. I think everybody's bracing for the worst that's about to come. So we're cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah. So sticking indoors. The weather was good today in Cape Town. So a lot of people came out and started to walk around and that kind of stuff. But uh, folks are wearing masks. So that's nice to see. Yeah. Doing as good as anyone can be doing under this. It's, it's good to hear that Cape Tonians are wearing masks. That was a big struggle in the beginning of the, <laughs> the, beginning of the lockdown. That's true. That's true. Yeah, in, in Gauteng, it, it looks like things are about to get uh, quite bad. I think we're preparing to be um, the COVID-19 epicenter. I think yesterday, uh, 3,000 new cases were reported in Gauteng, which is like a super high number, and it's probably the highest provincial daily total so far. So, yeah, it's about to get as bad as things wow. once were up in your side in New York. 
Yeah, we we do. We've got an article coming up about how people are coping with COVID in Lagos, in Nigeria. And I saw the numbers is currently it's 25,000 plus people are infected in the, in the whole of Nigeria. And then they have about 575 people have died. But the numbers there also after like a lull for a long time, suddenly it's spiking. And I think a governor of a state, so the highest ranking public official in Nigeria who died um, was a, a special advisor to the president, the most, a second most powerful man. Some people might say the most powerful man until he died. I think his name is Abba Kiari. Um, he was, he's an economic advisor to the president. He died of COVID and now a governor I saw is infected with COVID. So there is, after this long lull in, 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 on the continent where people are like, you know, are we being spared this? It seems that for some reason, the cases are now beginning to spike. So, you know, our, our, our thoughts are with those of you who are in the South, keep safe. This was, the, this was the lesson of New York, social distancing, wear a mask. If you can afford it, stay inside the house. Do not go outside if you don't have to. Unfortunately, I noticed that there are people insisting that kids must go back to school and all this. And I'm not sure if that's the right uh, kind of policy um, uh, right now. The second question before we get into the topics that we're trying to get through today is, what are you reading? Like, what are you guys reading? I won't go first this time. I have something I'm reading, but what are you guys reading at the moment? It doesn't have to be a book. I know last week we were like super heavy. I'm reading this book and this book. You can read a you can read a, a you can read a post. You can you know what are you reading? What are you guys reading at the moment? Yeah, um, uh, William, I'll go first. I'm I'm looking at lots of Twitter. I mean, like that's all I'm reading now. I'm just kidding. I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff, obviously, that's going on on Twitter, and I'm learning a lot, to be honest, especially in this in the moment that we're in with Black Lives Matter and everything that's sort of been going on around that. So there's a lot of education that I'm getting from Twitter. Uh, but sort of like formally, I just finished a book by an economist called Robert Schiller. So he won the Nobel Prize, I think, in economics at some point. But this book is really about narrative economics. So Schiller's thesis in this book is that, and you, I mean, when you think about it, it's obvious, right? He's saying we tell stories about the economic world as people, and these stories have impacts on the economy. So for example, I told Sean a story about if you bought a house in this part of Cape Town, you're gonna make money. Everybody else starts to tell stories like that. And then these stories have real world economic impacts. This is what Sheila's book is about. It's called Narrative Economics, it's a great book. I mean, I, I recommend it. But secondly, the other thing that I'm reading is I'm rereading uh, Tandikam Kandawiri's work. So Tandikam Kandawiri is this big economist who sadly passed away this year huge uh, economist, a huge public intellectual. I mean, uh, he's written for Africa as a country and I'm rereading his work uh, for the purpose an of, of an article that I'm writing sort of in remembrance of him. So I'm sort of going through some of his sort of work and it's really nice to read it and just to see how much this man had a lot to say about stuff. Yeah. So I'm reading. We're going to go later in the program. We're actually going to come back and talk. You're going to have to talk to us a little bit um, of course, you don't have to give a lecture, but it would be nice for you to just set up for us, like, what does the field of economics look like when it comes to talking about Africa? And where are the good African economists? Like, and I and Tandika was definitely one of those people. And sadly, he passed away um, earlier this year. And I would recommend people to, there's a beautiful interview on the website with him, um, along with, as, as Grieve rightly says, a piece that he wrote. Well, what have you been reading? Um, I'm still reading the same stuff I was reading last week book-wise, but 
Um, I'll talk about something that I've been reading this week. Uh, it's a, the transcript of a great interview between uh, Paul Gilroy and Ashil Mbembe. Um, and Ashil Mbembe kind of walks through this concept that he's been developing for, for some time now about the universal right to breathe, which I suppose becomes all the more poignant and pertinent during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. He walks through the racial disparities in deaths across the world. Um, and both the uh, transformative potential of the pandemic, but also how it can sort of um, deepen our, our societal divisions. So that's the most interesting that I've read so far. But, but other than that, like Grieve, I've mostly just been um, terminally on Twitter and, and learning a lot, but also not learning a lot, uh, a lot of crap on Twitter, but been trying to find the good stuff uh, in between. I know you sort of get caught up in like what's trending and then you just go like, like, why do I have to care? Why, why is this musician trending today? And I know people start tweeting about, is that person dead? Did they say something racist? Like there's usually like some, something is related to, I think this morning Lena Horn was uh, um, trending in New York and I was like, oh, what happened to her? But I knew she had passed away a couple of years ago, but it turned out it was her, it was her birthday. I mean, I would recommend Lena Horn, great actress, Porgy and Bess. We don't have time to talk about it now, but um, anyway, what am I reading? And I think this is this is a nice way for us to to transition into like just one of the things we want to talk about today quickly. So what I'm reading at the moment is um, I'm going back to reading a lot about football in South Africa in the 1990s, um, which I think was the greatest era of South African football. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, and I'm reading a book which title now escapes me, but it's it's about the twin lives, the kind of parallel lives of um, Lucas Hadebe. Um, and Mark Fish, Lucas Hadebe, if people don't know, he was the captain of South Africa. He, came, he played for Kaiser Chiefs. He's actually one of the last players who played in the homeland. He played in Bopsol, which was like the basically the local Premier League of a homeland of Botswana. He played for that in that league where he played really well. And then Kaiser Chiefs picked him up as a defender. I think he was a goalkeeper there. He's from Soweto. Um, and he's one of those players after the end of a well, not necessarily the end of apartheid, but after the beginning of negotiations, he gets, um, uh, Leeds buys him, Leeds United in England, him and Phil Massinga. Phil, I think, goes on to like play in Italy for Bari, uh, but uh, Lucas becomes like a star at Leeds. He becomes, becomes the captain, he becomes the face of the club. In fact, there's a band in Leeds called um, Kaiser Chiefs that took its name or like its inspiration from having Lucas Hadebe around in, in, uh, in, in Leeds, the music does not sound like like South African music. This is not even sort of a rip-off, you know, Vampire Weekend style music. But anyway, so the other main character in the book is um, Mark Fish. I don't know if you're from South Africa, you'll hear just like Fish. That's like a defender. He ended up at, uh, I think, at Lazio. And he also played in, in England for Charlton. He also captained the Charlton team. I can go on about football, as you can see. But anyway, <laughs> great book. The, oh, the, the book is called Madiba's Boy. There's an element here of writing them into like that kind of rainbow narrative of, you know, kind of the mid, mid to late 90s. Um, but anyway, these were great footballers. And the point about all of this is I'm trying to write an article about a, a um, local football club in South Africa, a professional team that doesn't exist anymore. And we're going to get into that. I think we should get into that in a minute. This was a team that operated in Cape Town, actually, um, and operated for a while. And some, a great player that came from that club, and I won't give it away because I don't want people to go and do that research, was this player called Benny McCarthy. That's where he started his professional career. 
um, before he went to um, Ajax Amsterdam. But anyway, so I'm reading a lot about like the the um, the mid '90s. Just a little footnote on that. There's another player who started his his professional career at, at um, Ajax Cape Town, not the Ajax Amsterdam, but the Cape Town version of it. Which people don't remember this, but John Obi Mikel started his oh, career wow. in South Africa. A lot of no people idea. don't know that before he goes to and then he may have gone United. He ends up at Chelsea, of course, but he started in South Africa, which is another day. Yeah. Anyway, we can go off on tangent about the thing we wanted to. We'll we'll come back to this. We should actually. Why don't we just talk about this for one second before we talk about the nice part of the football news we want to share, which you all know about anyway. Um, and Will and I were talking about this before we got on the show, and I'd like to hear Greaves' comments on this. Is this phenomena, uh, particularly in South Africa? Um, I don't know why we're getting with the serious thing, but like they, this thing where clubs sell their their name rights, so they're in the Premier League, and then you could sell your name rights to some other club that's like lower in a lower division, and then that club just buys your naming rights, and your players they move the club to some other city. So currently, there's this club, <laughs> Will Will is ready for this in Johannesburg <laughs> called Wits University. Yes, they were really well. It's not. South Africa's. So, South well, Africa's can you tell people what happened here? Just tell. South me. Africa's. I think it's South Africa's oldest club. Started in in 1921 on the eve of its 100 year anniversary. Next year, it would have celebrated 100 years of being in existence. Decides to sell its PSL rights to a, a club based in Limpopo called uh, TTMFC, and I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm not even going to try. And this like completely blindsided everyone. Nobody knew where this came from. They were doing well this season. They've consistently ranked top five for the last couple of years. In 2016-17, they won the PSL. And then, boom, out of nowhere, they just sell their, their participation rights to this random club. And, I mean, I haven't even, I haven't even looked into why this happened. Because if I do, it's just going to make me furious. Um, so I've just preferred to just ignore it and and grieve. You might have a different perspective, but this this might be the one thing that pushes me to just abandon local football because I'm like, if this nonsense is just going to happen, where clubs don't even want to build, don't even want to build their history, don't even want to carry on the culture, and they're just going to yeah. sell their their rights like it's I don't know mm. something on the side of the road. Then you know what? So, I want to ask a question here. So Vitz University has sold their rights to this other team in Limpopo. So will this team be playing in the premiership as Wits University in the PSL? No, they'll, be playing, they'll be playing as TTM FC and Budvest Wits will cease to exist. This 99-year-old club wow, will be banished. Yeah. Completely. Ah, yeah. okay. I mean, so it's weird. I can give a little I can actually give a little bit more context on sort of the history of this because I, after I read the story, I went online. This was the other day. Um, I did post it on Facebook. You can find it on my personal Twitter account. I linked to it. But the story is this, I think, is the seventh or eighth club since the formation of the PSL in 96 where wow. this has happened, where basically you sell your name, right? So, for example, Cape Town City, Greaves Club, which we're going to hear about in a minute, they bought the rights of another club. They, they, they I think the club was from Lumpopo. Yeah, Bumalanga, wasn't it? Yeah. And then they, it's yeah. another historic club in South Africa from the old NPSL, PS, NPSL, and they bought that club's right and then moved 
moved that club to Cape Town. Of course, they're like a nice brand. People love them. They play in this kind of Boca Juniors colors, but they did that. So at least eight clubs have done it. Amazulu has done this a bunch of times. Twice, I think, they bought the rights to other clubs so they can get back into the Premier League. Um, and this club, TT, how do you say it, the, the full acronym, TTC? TTC? Uh, TTM, TTM. To get into the yeah. second TTM, get into the second division of South Africa, they bought the rights to us to a club in, in Cape Town, which was a club called Milano, which no is idea. on the Cape Flats, really nice club, young player. People love this club, was going to go to the Premier, to the PSL, and then TTM bought their rights and got into the second division. And now TTM is buying the rights of the club. It wasn't a long time problem, I think, in, in South African football. And I actually wondered, I did say this on Twitter to people, is this unusual? Like, is South Africa unique in this way? Does this happen in any other African country? Does this happen in any other league that's sanctioned by FIFA? Because it just sounds bizarre that you could keep just buying the rights to a club and move you. In American sports, you can do it. I mean, there's been like Baltimore. I think they moved to Cleveland in the middle of the night in American football because that's a different system. There's no promotion relegation. The clubs are basically franchises, which you do in cricket in South Africa or rugby. And so you just move the franchise. But I'm not, I was never sure that this was happening in football, particularly in, in promotion mm. and relegation leagues, yeah. So yeah, sad day for South Africa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so I can. Somebody just ask you on our. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say something, Sean. I was just going to say that. Go ahead, Green. Go the, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, from the from the point of view of the owners of the club, I can imagine because I mean, the question is, why do the owners of the club set up these clubs in the first place? I mean, we we hope romantically that they set it up because they love football and they want to, you know enjoy football but they also run these things like a business you know i imagine they have bills to pay they have objectives and so on and so forth and from their point of view it seems like what well, it's like building up a startup you build a startup and then you sell it to some people so from their point of view it seems to make sense but you're right from our from the point of view of funds it's like it's really heartbreaking you know there's sort yeah. of uh, there's some things that we think are sacred like you know soccer it's a lot we think about it as a one last thing that shouldn't be influenced by money. <laughs> so I think from that point of view, it really breaks one's heart and there has to be a balance. I'm hoping that, yeah, this thing's a bit a bit strange. I mean, I can only imagine if my own club, City of Lusaka, if this happened to City of Lusaka, I'll just break, my heart would break. You know, I'd completely lose it. <laughs> Even though I understand the motivations of the owner of City of Lusaka, they can make money out of it. But yeah, it's pretty weird, pretty weird. I think there's a book by Cooper, Simon Cooper, and an economist from Michigan whose name is Stefan. I'm going to butcher his last name. It's like a Polish yes. name, I think, Swinyanski or something. And they mm. wrote a they wrote a book about how you don't actually make money from football. They don't. It, it's it's not like so to to get a football club. Most football clubs like run on a uh, you know on, it's a, on a loss. Like you don't you don't really like even the British clubs. Most British clubs, which is the most expensive league, right, and the most exciting league. I know <laughs> Greg said he's decolonizing himself from like following that league, but um, most 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 of those clubs in Europe are running at a loss. You don't really normally make football money from football. It's mostly like a vanity project um, that that sort of you know it's something you do because it's something you uh, it, it's like a like something you can brag about. Yeah, it sort of adds to your reputation. 
I mean, this is how people think of like owning a football club. And in South Africa, historically, I mean, Vitz also interestingly is a is a historically white football club, which is another sort of part of the legacy of South African football, the oldest black football club in South Africa, I think. And I, I'm not sure if Peter Allegi and a bunch of other football related people are watching is um, Orlando Pirates, I think. That's the oldest black football club in South Africa. And I think that's like 1933. You said Vitz was 31. Vitz is 1921. So that in South Africa, where see, there you go. So it's at least like almost 10, more than 10 years older. So the thing in South African football is the way that football clubs came about that they were community clubs, mostly Orlando Pirates, Morocco Swallows, even a lot of the Cape Town clubs, Cape, you know, Cape Town City, um, Santos, the old Santos, which I, I don't know what happened to them. They went down um, into the into the leagues. But like it, it was mostly community clubs. But then there were clubs, which I'm not going to call it a vanity project, but they were started by players. Jomo Sono is one. Um, the other one is uh, uh, Kaiser Motaung's Kaiser Chiefs. And I just saw the other day this guy, Omokwena, just died. Well, I think he owned Free State Stars, and he, but he was a local businessman in the Free State. So it's a, it's a, it's slightly different. Maybe there's some business people, but I think there's a way in which football clubs are thought about as like a vanity project. My last other quick point: I heard that there was a there was a rumor that the provincial government of the Northern Cape in South Africa wanted to buy a football team because that's how they thought they could market the province, um, and that team would play in the PSL, as we know. That is not unusual. That's not unusual because you know in, in, in DRC, uh TB Mazembe was yeah. owned by a politician or is owned by a politician. What's his name again? Moise Katumbe. Yeah. He Moise. owns a football club. Yeah, Matumbe, you know, the famous one of all Berlusconi. He owned a football club, AC Milan. So there's various different reasons as to why people own football clubs. I don't think it's to make money, though. I'm, I'm so I'm at a loss for why people are asking this in the live feed at the moment. Um, why are people quick to give give up the legacies of their clubs? What is the price? How's the price set? Um, we could do some research, but yeah, we don't. We're we're as a, we're as much as a loss as the people watching the program. Right now as to why this I was going to say, Sean, that uh, I think in terms of like returns to owning a football sort of like the monetary benefits of owning a football team. I think there's a lot of inequality, you're right. Most clubs, so even in, in, in England, for example, I can imagine most clubs lose money, but there's a select few, there's like a select elite few, uh, small set of clubs that make money, maybe by being in the Champions League and all the TV rights that come out of that, uh, from the merchandising. So I think the motivation for many people, you know, is like, I could set up a club, so maybe two motivations. I could set up a club that could eventually get into the Champions League. You know, you could be ambitious, in which case I'll eventually make money. So I can lose money now up until the point I make money. Or most people think I could like develop talent and then sell sell a couple of players to the big clubs. So you're right. I there's different motivations. I think part of it is vanity projects, but I think there's this expectation that you could make money out of it. Um and then there's all, all sorts of other nefarious things. <laughs> you know, maybe people use it for all this tax stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Know. This is what you want. You can, want, you think, can, clean, up. You can yeah. clean up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd be interested to know, like, does anyone know of any attempts by um, football associations to try and regulate football clubs so that there aren't these commercially driven enterprises and they reconnect with their community origins. I mean, that's probably not gonna happen now, given the fact that this is how they ran until like the 90s and it was only this yeah. explosion yeah. commercialization really began in the 90s. But has there been any movement anywhere in the world to try and 
restore that nature of football clubs to how they once were. Because I mean, what's surprising is that major clubs like Barcelona still have an ownership model that vests ownership in their fans and they're a thriving football club. Um, mm. And I mean, like, it would be interesting if there's anyone trying to return to that. I'll give you an example. There are definitely moves to do that. So the one is in Germany, all football clubs are owned by fans. I think like 50 plus one. So there are private investors, but the fans own the club. So that makes it impossible for the club to set the gate fees too high so people can't come to a match. Um, that that fans have a say in how the club is run, the merchandise, da da da. da. So that's like that's like that's the German model. So if you if people are interested, I would I would recommend googling a lot of the stories around this team called RB Leipzig. Uh -huh. RB Leipzig is basically a franchise of clubs called uh, Red Bull, Red Bull Salzburg, Red Bull New York, Red Bull Leipzig. So they couldn't call the team Red Bull Leipzig because Germany has strict rules about who can own a club and how a club is run. So they created, and I don't have the time or I'm going to mess it up, but RB Leipzig tried some kind of trick in which they kind of pretend that the club is run by the fans, but the private shareholder really has all the power. Now that club is winning and they're doing really well. So, you know, that's where Nabi Keita, who we're going to talk about in a minute, plays for Liverpool. He comes from there. So that's the one case that Germany regulates, like, um, how a club is run, how a club is owned. The second one is currently, if you're following the case in the UK, where the FA, all the FA members have to approve, the English FA, they have to approve who can own a club. So the current case is Newcastle United is up for sale. The owner is this erratic guy called um, Mike Ashley. He's trying to sell the club. People in Newcastle don't feel that he cares about the club. And the buyer, the current, the, the big buyer is the Saudi government. As we know, the Saudi government doesn't have a good reputation right now. Well, they've kind of never really had one. But the, the, there's, so there's an issue as to kind of stop the sale. It's, uh, you know, pressure groups, fans. There's been a lot of critical reporting in the British media as to whether a club should be owned by a government like the Saudi government. The Saudi government might actually push back and say, this is hypocrisy because you have... Some other princedoms in the Gulf are owning another one, I think, is owning Man City. You have yeah. Russian oligarchs owning Chelsea. Um, you know, uh, you know, so that so that argument, the Saudis, even if we know that they I, I wouldn't I wouldn't sell a club to the Saudis right now. Um, but I think the Saudis can also say you hypocritical by doing this kind of game. So I think there's there's one, you have the association makes rules about going through a process of due diligence as to like who can buy a club. And secondly, I actually like the German model the best. The German model has brought us clubs like St. Pauli, Google them. Uh, they've also, Union there's a club Berlin. currently in Berlin called Union. That's the, that's the club right now. That's the, if you're a lefty, you got to shout for Union Berlin right now. So that club is totally owned by the fans. That's like a really fan-owned club. Fans are really involved in it. Um, so, you know, there's models that are breaking from this. The problem with South Africa is like, South African football, and this is something I'd really love to research, it has been, or just African football in general, there's, there's so much, there's, there's so little regulation in the ownership of clubs. I think I've recently shown an article also about Kenyan football, that Kenyan football suffers from the same thing. There's very little regulation about who can own a club. There's very little regulation about how the league gets run. 
there's there's sort of a cartel nature to some of this football in South Africa, for example. Two clubs, Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates, basically dominate the league, dominate sponsorship. So there's just a lot of inequities in the way football gets run um, and the way the way this the, the the checks and balances are set up. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to get sued by, by the people who run South Africa. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was going to say that I think, so the, the sort of the comment about Newcastle United, which I'll come to Newcastle United because I used to support them at some point, precisely because their black and white stripes are the stripes of my own hometown football team, which is City of Lusaka, right? So they have, so when I was looking around, I said, who I'm going to support outside of Zambia? I picked the guys with the black and white stripes. So I'm going to say that this tension between outside money and local ownership, I think it's going to keep manifesting itself precisely because football is now so fin uh, financialized, right? You need a lot of money to perform at some level, right? And uh, I don't know, like William said, this started in the 90s. So for as long as we sort of like, we've neoliberalized football, you will need a lot of outside money to perform, to buy the players, to pay them well. So this tension is going to keep playing itself out, I think. I mean, so we're going to have a lot of the exceptions, uh, sort of the German model and the German stuff you talked about. I think these are going to be exceptions going forward, unless we do something structurally to remove money out of football, because you need money. Look at the salaries that Barcelona or Real Madrid or Manchester United or Manchester City are paying. How are you going to raise this money from your local township, it is impossible. So there's going to be this really big tension. And well, uh, you have, you yeah, like, oh, sorry, Will, you go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, I mean, I think one of the reasons money plays a significant role now in football as well is that clubs have overtaken player development. So all of the big clubs run the most prosperous footballing academies. You don't go play for your local football club. Yeah as a youth yeah. anymore you go play for a football academy you enter the system as early as you can you try to get groomed in that system in order to play for a major club so footballing clubs are overtaking grassroots development and so long as that's the case then you're not really going to be able to undermine how they're entrenching how finance finance uh, financial interests are entrenching themselves in the football system no totally so I want to, because we want to talk with, with Grieve a little bit. We got we got some time. So we want to talk to Grieve a little bit about his own work and what he's doing. But it's interesting that we just keep on talking about money right now because that's what Grieve's uh, money, the, the way we run the world with money. This is going to be like, we'll, we'll get to Grieve in a minute. But I it would be remiss if we don't spend a minute just celebrating another club, which unfortunately um, is also, it can only do what it does because it has a lot of money. So I'm not going to say anything and just ask as the producer, our producer on the net to just, just play the video on the net. Just for those of you who are haters, let's just play this video. <laughs> this club means everything to the people. So it's our job to show that it means absolutely everything for us as well. It's a lot about emotion, the intensity, how the supporters live. Well, did you ever hear a better message than you'll never walk alone? It's the most beautiful song in the world. Everybody feels it, everybody loves it, and everybody gets the message. In your darkest moments, you are not alone. I love that. 
Liverpool. And that means we have to entertain the people and we have to show all the desire, to show all the love for the game. We will all be together soon. There will be a moment for us. For now, tell the world we are Liverpool champions of England. When you Liverpool are champions through a storm. This is the man. This is a big difference between the African context and the American context. Oops. I don't know what's okay, happening. Okay, moving there, on. But, um, <laughs> right now, they, they don't know what to say right now. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm giving the floor to you. You know what happened. Liverpool, after 30 years, won the Premier League in England. This is an interesting thing. One, I'll just say two things quickly. Um, I'm a Liverpool fan, so of course I'm like, like I'm playing different versions of when you walk all alone. When, when you'll never walk alone every day. Ray Charles, Michael Jackson, uh, Louis Armstrong has a version. So I'm just saying I'm like in another place. Although I recognize all the problems of how these clubs are run, but in any case, I'm going to leave it to these gents. What is your reaction to to this whole this moment? Uh, William, do you want to go first? Or? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make a quick comment. I mean, I should say no comment, but I mean, I'm not a Liverpool supporter. Uh, I support the club that Liverpool took a, a Champions League victory away from in 2019. Um, but I mean, it's it's great. Like, the Liverpool team this year is a fantastic team. I think I think everyone across uh, fan uh, and uh, fandom lines can, can say that it's been a great season. Jurgen Klopp is an inspirational coach. So I think it's it's well-deserved. And yeah, congrats to Liverpool and congrats to all Liverpool supporters is, is all I'll say. Yeah, same here. Congratulations, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say my dad. So I, I, I was going to say that, you know, I don't know whether this is true across the African continent, but there's a certain generation that is attached to Liverpool. And my dad, uh, I sort of in some ways shown you in between my dad's generation and my generation. Uh, but my dad is a big, big Liverpool fan. So he's been on cloud nine. He's been on cloud nine this entire week. He's just, uh, you know, so co congratulations to my dad and to you and to all Liverpool fans. And I think it's a nice story. It's a lovely, wonderful story. Yeah. I just want to ask a quick question. Because, sorry, just a quick question. My dad is also a, a Liverpool supporter. He's, he's from Tanzania, um, and he's a little bit older than, uh, a little bit above I, generation as well. I mean, what explains the support of Liverpool, like, in, like, African countries? And <laughs> Sean, can I explain? I can definitely tell you. Can I attempt an explanation? Can I explain? <laughs> oh, go so, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I mean, this will sound very uh, social science-y, but I think it's got to do with, I think the folks who study, you know, like, I mean, supporting a football team is, you know, it's like a, it's like a warrior thing, I think. So in the 80s, the most important team out of the premiership was Liverpool. I mean, the greats back then played for Liverpool. My dad never stopped talking about Ian Rush or John Barnes. The way we used to speak about uh, Alan Shearer, for example, in the late 90s, early 90s, and things like that. So I think there was, a, in the 80s, this was a team to support. If you wanted to support a winning team, 
Liverpool was the team, right? So you, you get these generational gaps. There's my generation are big Manchester United fans, precisely because in the noughties, in the early noughties, Manchester was a team, right? And then there, are sub, then there are Manchester City supporters who never existed in my time. Man City was not a team to support, but now there's a whole generation of folks who do it. So, I mean, this is my very simplistic explanation for it. Could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I think you're spot on. I think you're spot on. This, is, this has to do with, one, with generations, but secondly, it has to do with media, with television. Yeah. Liverpool was the first kind of world, the first club to, be, to become sort of known in the age of TV. Before TV, of course, there was Real Madrid of the 1950s and the 1960s, the greatest club in Europe. And they, I think they just got an award from UEFA for that. But as, as, as to like a club of the media age, that's Liverpool. Um, and I think it started with television in the late 70s. Um, and then there's this, this other issue about being from South Africa, there's a way in which the English game appealed because it was not South African. Because remember, South African football was segregated. Um, and so people could vicariously live through another league, which ironically was also a league that was very racist, uh, very exclusionary when it came to black players. Which is, and, I, and I, the reason we actually brought up Liverpool is like, why is it that there are all these Africans who identify with this league that's like <laughs> far away from them in, a, in another continent um, and that where we're actually, <laughs> they wouldn't be welcome. You know, like in general, that country has moved to the right. The immigration laws are very strict about, uh, well, in historically, they've been very adverse to like allowing Africans to come there. So it's like, what is this thing about um, being part of this club? And Liverpool, actually, I want to say this at least for some people, Liverpool was 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 not known as a multiracial club or a club where black players or African players were welcome. I mean, the first black player I think who played for Liverpool was in the 1980s. This guy called Howard Gale. He barely played for the team, and then he left. Then John Barnes played for Liverpool. And he was like one of the only black players who played for Liverpool in the late 80s, early 90s. And there's a really good book about him called Out of His Skin, because the assumption was he played out of his skin. That's why, you know, he's not black. He's just good. So, you know, Liverpool has a quite an interesting history. And it and the point about this is, I think, for maybe for now, for my kid, my son has begun to Liverpool now, might be also because now Liverpool looks like Africa. Yeah. At the, you know, at the heart of the Liverpool team is like Salah, Mane, um, was the guy from Cameroon, uh, Matip. Um, and then you have all these players of African descent who are like, they sh they make the team. Trent Alexander-Arnold, Virgil van Dijk, mm. Wijnaldum. You know, this is this is sort of part of that, which is, which is legally, my final point on this is, before we celebrate that too much, though, I was just watching a program about Klopp the other day. The way that Klopp thinks about the football team is the way you think about a multinational corporation. So, you know, this is sort of old school... Uh, Dutch East India Company sort of thinking, well, both under kind of slavery colonialism, but also like the modern corporation, which is it doesn't matter where you're from, but the corporation, as long as you can help the corporation win, the corporation takes you on. I just watched this the other day. So it's not, so there's a way in which you can think about it as something progressive, but there's also an element here of just this is sort of Klopp is heavily influenced by He's a Christian. He's heavily influenced by then by this kind of management speak in which you just get the best people from wherever they are. But, you know, nevertheless, we'll celebrate it. It's a, it's a club that is increasingly very African. And if you're an Arsenal fan, that, that club used to be like that. That was the club where you would see people that look like you if you're from Africa. And I think now it's Liverpool. So, you know, I'm happy with that.
I wanted to shout out at this point, shout out to Howard Gale, who you just mentioned now, because he turned down a knighthood. I could be wrong. I don't know if it's a knighthood or an OBE. I mean, so real is a real, yeah. And he gave yeah. very good reasons. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real one. Yeah. yeah, he also doesn't do the Liverpool thing where former players turn up and, and hang around in a pub and talk to the fans. He's like, I'm not going to do that. That club was, didn't, go, didn't do well by me. And he also is mad at Liverpool for the whole way that they dealt with the Luis Suarez. Uh, when Luis Suarez was being racist towards Evra, Liverpool like stood with Suarez. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, it's you know, he, he's actually a man of principle. And I, I we definitely we definitely want to praise him. But anyway, we've got Grieve here and I, we know the clock is running. Um, and one of the <laughs> Say that again. Now I'm saying, speaking of men of principle, uh, we have a grieve Chell on the show, um, <laughs> and we should we should maybe at this point just actually yeah let's bring you in. Um, let's ask about your career and yeah how did you become? You're an economist and uh, at the moment you're a you're a senior lecturer at the University of Colonial Times. I mean the University of Cape Town. <laughs> um, yeah, how did you how did you end up there? How did you become an economist? What's your story? Um, I I think sort of like Sean was talking a little while about the impact of media and television. I think my I once I used to watch a lot of like national TV in Zambia. Obviously, like any 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 youngster growing up in the nineties, we had, we just had one TV station, so we all had to watch one TV station. And at the time was sort of like the depths of what were the structural adjustment years, uh, some of the worst, the crisis years on the African continent, you know, when things were incredibly bad, IMF and World Bank were moving in to privatize, liberalize, all the bad things that we that have been documented. And then there was a television program that came every Sunday because there was so much chaos in the economy. So uh, uh, some guy got this idea to put together a bunch of Zambian economists to talk about the economy every every week and i watched this and i saw all these like zambian economists teaching at the university of zambia and talking about the zambian economy and i just got so enthralled and i said to myself when i finish high school and i have to go to university i'll sign up and become an economist my dad wasn't very happy obviously he wanted me to do medicine just like any you know uh, but that's how i ended up being an economist i just watched a tv show and got hooked <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how so, did you how did you end up so how did you end up then at UCT you study for a PhD there right Yeah um so as as anybody I don't know when most people tell stories there's always this like accidents that happen so I finished at the University of Zambia with a degree in economics and then I said what am I going to do I don't know work in banking or something and then by some series of accidents I ended up working uh, for Citibank in Johannesburg as a banker around about the time of the financial crisis, you know? So uh, a very interesting time to be a banker, but I'd always sort of thought about going back to school. So I ended up in Johannesburg by some accident and then by some accident learned about the University of Cape Town. And then I ended up sort of registering for a graduate degree there and I just never left, you know? I just never thought I'd live in Cape Town, never in my wildest imaginations. I always thought I would like dig my roots in Lusaka you know, so then I ended up here, studied here. I left briefly to go to the U.S. So I was a postdoc at Harvard for uh, for two years. And then I somebody told me there was a job and they wanted me back and I ended up back here. So 
yeah, but I'm always saying I'm going to leave one day, you know, so, but I'm still here. So maybe I should just accept this is home for a while. <laughs> yeah, Sean's hometown. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I mean, it's funny. It's funny that you ended up in. Well, in, you were going to ask a question, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's funny that you ended up in, I mean, in Cape Town. I mean, the joke I opened with um, was calling it the university, the university of colonial times. Um, but you, you do a lot of, you do a lot of research and a lot of writing on, you know, decolonizing economics and the economics curriculum and the discipline as a whole. I mean, how did you, I mean, could you walk us through what you mean by that? How did you arrive at such a critique of the economics discipline? Can you give us some insight into um, this movement towards the de decolonization of, of pedagogy and teaching and syllabi? I mean, we all know it's, it's deeply connected to the, to the fallless movements of the 2015 and 2016 era. Um, but yeah, how did you find yourself being uh, a proponent of, of this idea? And what does that idea mean? Um, so William, you're too kind when you say proponent. I'm not at all a proponent. I just <laughs> yeah. So how I, I think there's sort of like a lot of layers to your question, and I'll try to sort of give a very simple version of events. So I I think writing about decolonization for me was sort of trying to put my frustrations onto paper, like any person who wants to write, I hope is you write because you're frustrated about something and you want to sort of put those frustrations down on paper. Hopefully that some people read it, but mostly for yourself. So I think it's got to do with my training as a PhD student at the University of Cape Town and the stuff that I had to read and the way I had to think. And I thought to myself, a lot of these things that I'm reading have very little resonance with where I am right now, which is South Africa, but also more importantly, where I'm from, where I was born, which is Zambia. Also, uh, generally, in terms of my understanding of the African continent. So there was a, I felt like there was a disjuncture. And this was not a unique feeling to myself. It was a feeling that a lot of us in the PhD cohort shared when we would read these things, almost as if we would live double lives. We would read these things and have to learn them for the exam and for writing uh, this uh, thesis. But we knew that most of it was sort of had no resonance with what we were experiencing or what we knew about our locale and all those kinds of things. So this is how I said, look, I'm going to, you know, this is how I entered the debate from that point of view. You know, it's sort of like as a way of, you know, saying I'm frustrated about this. Uh, traditional scholarly outlets are not talking about these kinds of issues. Perhaps, you know, uh, like an influential place like Africa is a country which is non-traditional, very exciting could in some ways sort of like uh, listen to the stuff that I have to say. But also, more importantly, a shout out to a guy called Iksan Basia, who's now a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, I believe. He sort of like wrote one of the first pieces in terms of during the fallist era, talking about decolonization in a South African context. And then I responded to that. And so other colleague, Sean Muller, who's at the University of Johannesburg, also sort of responded. But this is the sort of the genesis, uh, William, of how I ended up uh, participating in this debate, and you also wrote a you also uh, you wrote a piece actually. Uh, you was just sort of alluding to that on Africa as a country. Um, I think it was called um, "Economics Has an African Problem," and in that piece, I mean, I, I would you should I would love for you to say more about this and how this worked. I think you mentioned in that piece that of the major journals that write about African economics, neither of them are actually on the continent. And that the editorial boards, so fine if they're not on the on the African continent, 
but the editorial boards contain no African economists, and that the one person was like, I think it was a white South African or German, uh, was listed as being in South Africa, but was actually not even in South Africa. Well, again, this is a you know we 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 talking mostly about South Africa here, but the, it is a case that like South Africa dominates. So if there's this unequal relationship already within economics, then South Africa becomes this other place that dominates too, and then it reproduces a whole bunch of inequalities within that system. And I think if you can add on to that, so there's not just a question of like, who do we see the representation, but there's also the representation of certain kinds of ideas, very conservative ideas get reproduced as you already kind of alluded to within the classroom. Um, so there's very little like, uh, it's very it's very orthodox. I mean, this is a very sort of economic, you know, the way people talk in economics is like very orthodox kind of approach to economics gets reproduced. Can you Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, Sean, I think so. You're right. My very first piece for Africa as a country was uh, the piece that you allude to, which is it was titled Economics as an Africa Problem. Uh, I wrote it like in one afternoon, angry. And I think the reason why I was angry now, I remember, was I saw a tweet. You know, William talked about about tweets and just generally how to, some tweets can be trash. I saw a trash tweet that just said, listed what were called big thinkers in development right, big thinkers in development, in development economics. And I saw these names and I said, I mean, many of these people are white men. And I thought about, I thought to myself and I said, I sat in a class at the University of Zambia with some big thinkers, like Zambian big professors, big thinkers. And I was just sort of thinking to myself, how come they're not sort of reflected in this list of big thinkers that was being retweeted around? So I wrote this piece as well saying, can I do like a mini audit at this time figuring out who's writing about Africa in terms of economics, what do the editorial boards look like, and editorial boards matter because, you know, journals are like the clearing houses of, of knowledge, right? What constitutes as knowledge, as things that we know about the world, and a lot of this is documented in the journals, and the journals act at this clearing, sieving house. And I said to myself, now, look, it, it makes sense because I look at these editorial boards, uh, right, even something called the Journal of African Economies is uh, somewhere at Oxford, and like Sean says, maybe that's not so much of a problem. I think it is, uh, but even then, the editorial board is completely made up of folks who, you know, they write about the continent, but uh, very likely they may not have an intimate knowledge about the continent, and it sort of shows up in terms of uh, in terms of the kind of ideas, the kind of scholarly work, the kind of policy work that comes out of that. So, and you're right, Sean, and I think. Uh, for many folks in North America and Western Europe, uh, South Africa is thought of as, it is part of Africa, but I think therein lies a problem in that a lot of folks come over here. Uh, for example, a lot of folks who set up research centers that are supposed to research the African continent, but often they sort of, they end up here in South Africa and then they fall into this milieu of inequality, which then gets sort of uh, reproduced and perpetuated across the African world. It's most, more or less like how foreign direct investment works. The big American multinational set up in South Africa first, and then they use South Africa as a launch pad to conquer the rest of the continent and reproducing all those problems of capital and et cetera, et cetera. So you're pretty right. And then this, this world that we're describing in academia, I mean, there's one case that I'm going to... If we have time, I want to ask your opinion about this case that's currently happening at the University of Cape Town. I see oh. Will smiling. But before yeah. we come back to that, I, I also feel that well that you discussed in academia. Yeah, we don't want to get sued, but we we you know it's a we can talk. 
Um, the, I was like sort of laughing here, but but um, the the thing I just I, I just want to establish something else which I think is important, and I have some questions also from our our viewers on YouTube. They're asking questions, and I and I'm recognizing you. Don't worry, we are going to ask your questions to to grieve. I'm hoping you can stay like sort of for five minutes over the hour, and then we'll we'll um, we'll end here because we got too caught up in football. But let me just quickly ask this question: There is also a way in which that inequality in terms of who speaks, what kind of ideas do they present, and particularly wrong-headed ideas for Africans actually, um, gets reproduced in like how the, our countries get run, the advice our, our, our governments take, so that our finance ministers are, are sort of, they kind of, uh, what is the word, they like knee, knee-capped knee into, um, and I think it's South Africa, come in here also, like in South Africa right now, um, and somebody actually asked about the Zambian economy. So maybe you can use both the Zambian economy and the South African economy if you want. And if you if you want to go into those as examples of that, in which the independence of of these Africans, of Africans to make their own decisions and make decisions that benefit their people or our people doesn't often it doesn't come through because that that inequality of ideas gets reproduced in like what our governments can do. I don't know what yeah. if you want to add to that before you yeah, respond. I mean, I'll just add like quickly on this. I mean, it's you, you're seeing this unfold during the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, last week, South Africa's finance minister, Tito Mboweni, announced the supplementary budget. And by all indications, South Africa is en entering into a fiscal climate of austerity, which is like bizarre how, how enduring and sustained those orthodoxies are in the levers of power and, and how... A lot of the, you know, people are, are worried that South Africa is going to be uh, approaching the IMF for a, for a loan, and that might mean structural adjustment. But how in South Africa, really, the appetite for, for structural adjustment is homegrown. It's Tito who wants a reason to go to the IMF and ask them not only for money, but for, for reforms as they're, as they're starting to co-opt the word, which is just surprising because, I mean, I'm looking at the South African, like, mainstream press, and a lot of people are... are are applauding this language of austerity that, that Tito is trying to inject into the South African political landscape. Um, and like, like holding uh, tightly to these old ideas um, that they've just copy pasted from like old textbooks, you have to think. Because by like everywhere else, I mean, it's surprising everywhere else, this, this logic of austerity is being challenged, it's being questioned. But, but here, um, people are still pushing a, a narrative and, and a way of thinking that is so outdated um, and one that is, is completely you know, unoriginal um, and, and inapplicable uh, for, for our domestic conditions. So it's just, it's just bizarre and perplexing how you know, deep-rooted the stuff you're talking about is. Um, you're right. I mean, you and Sean, sort of, there's a lot in what you've said. And there's lots of angles uh, through which one can uh, sort of enter this kind of debate. But I think the most important thing is to think about these ideas and where these ideas come from, right? So these ideas about sort of neoliberal ideas, structural adjustment, austerity, these ideas uh, have sort of, I mean, they've been entrenched in the minds of a lot of folks who make policy on the African continent. And there's many reasons around why this is so. On the one hand, there's a hierarchy of what constitutes knowledge about the African continent, right, in terms of economics. So there's a hierarchy of what, when somebody says, what do we know about the way Africa works in terms of economics? Where do we go? We look at the European journals, 
we look at uh, the American journals because we think that those are the clearing houses, the legitimate clearing houses for what constitutes knowledge. The African universities don't constitute legitimate uh, a sort of clearing houses of what constitutes knowledge. The African think tanks, African sort of NGOs and those kinds of things. But so we think it's the American European uh, journals that are going to tell us about ourselves. So a lot of those ideas in those journals, many of them are very simplistic in the way that you illustrate, precisely because uh, precisely because they're studying the continent from very far. All right, if you're studying the continent from very far and the folks that you are in conversation with are not folks on the continent, but you're conversing to somebody else in North America, if you're at Harvard, you're conversing to somebody at MIT or whatever, you're going to write very simplistically. I mean, this kind of simplis simplistic writing is non-existent when it's being written about American issues. There's always nuance, there's always compl complexity, there's always, you know, all these kinds of things. So there's a hierarchy of what constitutes legitimate knowledge. That hierarchy tends to result in simplistic knowledge. And then that is what our ministers of finance are using in terms of making sense of their own situations. But also there's another, there are other forces and other phenomena at play here. A lot of these ministers of finance are probably in their 50s or 60s. Most of them got their graduate training in the 80s uh, at the supposed high point, high point of neoliberalism. So if you got a PhD in economics or a master's degree in economics, or you got a bachelor's training in economics in the 80s, you were trained in neoliberal economics. That's what you were trained in. And a lot of our folks via capacity building initiatives paid for by the World Bank, donors would say, you need folks who are who have PhDs in economics. So send them to the US. They'll go to the US. In the US, they'll be taught neoliberalism. Uh, about their own countries. So these are the forces. So we have ideas on the one hand, we also have financial interests, right? So, and then there's this idea that if you are in a crisis situation, the way it works right now is that you go to pick up your textbook. If you have got a balance of payment crisis, you've got a crisis of financial crisis as a country, you, you ought to go to the IMF because the IMF will get you in order. Right. So there's a lot of things that are going on here. Um, and this is how I explain what's happening. This is how I explain how our ministers of finance think. Interestingly, and I've had a conversation with Sean about this, you don't get to see this sort of ideological constraint in the health sphere, for example. So if you look at your ministers of health, they tend to approach things differently. If you look at your ministers of, I don't know, social development, community development, they tend to think think about things very differently. They tend to consult more, at least this is my own experience, they tend to consult more their local doctors, their local medical experts, the local community, precisely because they don't have this ideological constraint. Uh, but you see it a lot in the economics, in the economic sphere, uh, precisely because of the reasons that I've just uh, articulated. And this is why I think decolonization is important, and it means many things. As William has said, it means many things to different people. But I think one of the things that is really important is we have to structurally break down this hierarchy. Uh, you know, this thing that says to us that the only legitimate warehouse of knowledge about Zambia is the Journal of Development Economics that's based in the U.S. or the Journal of African Economies that's based in, the, uh, in Oxford, right? There is a Zambia Social Science Journal. There's a South African Journal of Economics here. Those places ought to be uh, just as just they ought just as much to be legitimate sources of knowledge. What should really matter at the end of the day is the strength of the arguments, the strength of the analysis. And in my own experience, in my own reading, I actually tend to find I actually tend to find much more satisfaction from reading the local journals than uh, from reading uh, uh, outside journals. So that's one angle through which we can think about the imperatives why it's important to decolonize. Right? We need to break down these sort of hierarchies of ideas because ideas are dangerous. Ideas have real world consequences. Yeah.
Can I ask a quick, uh, because I think you did not get to that, and I'm hoping you would. So Daniel Mwape, he's watching, and he, I'm sort of going to use this question to ask you to just take us through this. What's happening in Zambia with the Zambian economy? We see it being reported in the FT, in the Guardian, um, that Zambia, I think sort of Zambia has been compared to Argentina, Argentina around defaulting. Can you just take us through like what's happening? I think that's probably what Daniel is sort of like kind of hoping that you would just help. I think he's Zambian maybe. He's trying to work his way to understanding what's happening with the Zambian economy. Okay, thanks, Sean. Um, yeah, so I think Daniel Mwape must be Zambian. Mwape is a, is a, is a proper Zambian name. I mean, we used to have, like, yeah, I mean, if you football fan, there are lots of Mwapes in Zambia's football history. Um, I love that. It's a proper Zambian name. Yeah, it's a proper Zambian name. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so I think, I think I think like the Zambian uh, story. I think this story sort of Zambia is going to be in many ways. Zambia is going to be the typical story for much of the continent in this decade, right? It will even even without COVID, right? Even without COVID, uh, much of the continent is debt distressed, right? So it's surprising that uh, we had debt written off. Many countries on the continent had their debt written off, their external debt written off, and then all of a sudden we've built up this debt again. So again, this is like the danger of this is like the danger of dangerous ideas, right? So there was a big dangerous idea towards the end of the noughties, the first decade of the 21st century. And this idea was saying to us that look, aid hasn't worked. There's a lot of work that shows that aid doesn't work, right? But we need uh, foreign exchange to do stuff, right? So one way that you can get this foreign exchange is go out to the financial markets, countries would is issue bonds as companies issue bonds, and then they could borrow this money uh, to do all sorts of developmental projects, right? Unlike aid, this was the thinking, I think uh, sort of typified by a country, country mate of mine, Dambesa Moyo, unlike aid, when you borrow from the capital markets, the idea was that the market can discipline African leaders into delivering, right? I don't know how this was going to happen, maybe by some magical wand, but this was the thinking that borrowing from the capital markets tends to discipline African leaders and therefore they tend to invest that money that they've borrowed in productive things that enable them to pay back this debt at some point. But obviously this, I don't need to tell you this, uh, this hasn't happened, right? So a lot of African countries are indebted right now. You know, Zambia, Kenya, the list is there. We issued all issued bonds and we've got nothing to show for it. This money is spirited, was just spirited away, right? But now we have to pay back. Many of these were 10 year bonds. Zambia issued the first bond in 2012. It's due in 2022. Yeah, what did we do with the money? Nobody knows, right? So this is a, and this is why Mwape, Daniel Mwape is saying, are we at the point of Argentina where we might need to default, right? So we don't have money to pay back, right? Again, the danger, the sort of the danger of dangerous ideas. So where do we go? We go to the IMF because that is how you are taught to deal with what is called a balance of payment crisis. So, uh, so that's what's wrong with Zambia. We just have a lot of debt, and this is what's wrong with many African countries. We have a lot of debt on our books, which has been exacerbated by the fact that COVID has arrived, right? COVID was never part of the plan. Now, COVID means we can't sell, you know, copper, for example. If you're in Zambia, you can't sell copper. If you're in Ghana, you can't sell cocoa. And you need to sell cocoa and copper to get the U.S. dollars to pay back this debt. So we're really in trouble. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're in what, what we, we need. We need this. We need to get foreign exchange somehow in. But Zambia really typifies what's going to happen across much of the continent in this decade, this business of uh, debt distress. Yeah. 
That was um that was a really um, excellent answer. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right about saying that Zambian case really just typifies the case for African countries and a lot of countries on the on the global south. And I think we should definitely have you back on the show to just walk us through what can be done um, in order to to try and push forward a new way of thinking about economics and and fiscal budgets and monetary relations. Um, but to, to get back to an idea you introduced, um, which is this idea of the danger of dangerous ideas, and to, to bring it a bit more a bit more micro, um, something happened at at UCT um, where a, a journal article was written by this professor, um, and the journal article made a, a very bizarre and truly, you know, it was a it was a whack uh, kind of article. Um, that was, if, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, and I have to make sure I'm remembering correctly because it just struck me as totally absurd that this could be something that finds its way to a peer-reviewed academic journal. But it was something to do with, and Sean, you could remind me, and Greed, you could help me as well, something to do with how uh, people living in the article. So you wrote a bunch of articles, but the one that got people really upset was a commentary. We have to make that clear because I know her, her, she would fight. She would fire back and say, "No, it wasn't peer reviewed. It was a commentary." Nevertheless, okay. it was published in a journal. But continue. So it's it's a commentary on, and maybe so that she doesn't fight back because she seems to do so very very hard. But it was a commentary on on people in townships and their and their treatments of of rats or something. Sean, please help me remember. I can't really recall exactly what it was. <laughs> I think she said that uh, grief can correct me, but I think she said that um, black people—they uh, have rats in this township in Kailicha in informal housing, and that they are cruel to the rats in the way they kill the rats. And one of the reasons that they were cruel, it might be because it's linked to witchcraft. And then she wrote a second. I know that was actually a research article. That mm -hmm. thing I think was peer reviewed. The mm -hmm. other article, the commentary one, and grief—I see grief waking up about this one right now. Um, the other one is where she said, uh, in the commentary, she said that black students um, do not want to study bio, uh, bio, biological sciences. And she had, again, these very spurious uh, reasons for it. And she was, the, the black academic caucus on the campus um, wrote a response to her and said that she was, you know, this is nonsense. Um, and then I think there was also two other professors from other universities um, most most one we know, Jimmy Adesina wrote a piece in one of the journals, and actually in that same journal. And I think two other, two three other professors co-authored an article, also basically saying this is just bad science, sloppy work. Um, and so, but for some reason, this being South Africa, it seems nothing happens. So, can you just like, what is yeah. your take on all this happening? Grief is like, I'm not. Grief is like, I'm I'm working in this university. Uh, Grief is doing the like no comment. <laughs> anyway, you have this is I love this part. Last question, but we're gonna let you go. So just how are you? Oh, the oh, reason okay. we ask, and I think it's right that Will Will says like what was it? Bad ideas or something like terrible okay, ideas from the school of terrible yeah. ideas. But just one other quick. Point. I think you also said something earlier, which is why I'm sort of asking this. You said we should not read these American journals, but read these local journals. And actually, this was published in. To South African journals. So I don't see why I should read these local journals if this is the kind of objectionable, <laughs> offensive stuff that they are publishing. 
Yeah, I mean, and Sean, I want to put that in quotes because I don't want to be sued. Yeah, I mean, Sean, hey, just what's going, going on here? Grief. Yeah, I mean, before I sort of try to launch in and attempt an explanation, I think I, it's important that I put a qualifier on my other comment about reading local journals. As you know, Sean, you're uh, South African. South Africa is a special place, right? It's a special case because local journals in South Africa look quite like, especially in terms of who's writing and in terms of the editorial boards, local journals don't look any different from North American and European journals for the reasons that we know, right? For the reasons of history, you know, uh, discrimination, racism, and those kinds of things. So South African journals, just like the South African Academy and the South African Professoriate, is not very different, at least uh, in appearances, to sort of North, North American and Western European outlets. And uh, so I would, uh, I was being very generous. So I would say read more star, local stuff, ex South Africa, if you can, right? You, you're going to get a kick out of those. You're gonna enjoy those much more, right? Than you, so I think that's sort of one qualifier I would say. So, I mean, this thing with uh, Nicole Inatras is very bizarre, you're right. I mean, it's a completely bizarre thing. It's bizarre for many reasons. For me, uh, the most bizarre thing is that she's trained as an economist. At least as I understand it, she's a professor in the School of Economics, right? So I was very surprised to see her writing about this stuff, uh, which to my mind has uh, little to do with econ. Uh, maybe she would argue that the quantitative aspects of her study have got some stuff to do with economics because economists are trained uh, sometimes to uh, sort of interrogate quantitative stuff. Yeah, but it's a bizarre article. I think it talks about, I think it tries to answer why we don't see so many black students in zoology or in these kinds of biological sciences. And then she has some very strange hypotheses, you know, like not owning a pet, all those kinds of things that not owning a pet uh, will influence whether you have some affinity to wildlife or whatever, which is bizarre because a lot of our people on the African continent, you know, we grow up with pets of all sorts and, uh, you know, grow up with wildlife of all sorts. And in fact, if you go to a place like Zambia or Ghana or Tanzania or wherever, this is a moot question. I mean, you go to the biological sciences department there, the zoological sciences department there, you will find black, black professors, black students, right? Uh, and many of them <laughs> socioeconomically at the same level as uh, sort of black South African uh, students, right? So we have to go beyond and search for deeper questions as to why something is blocking black South African students from entering zoological sciences. Biological sciences got nothing to do with pet ownership. Because if you go to Ghana, you find them. Go to Zimbabwe, you find. Go to Malawi, you find them. Those play. Those universities have got zoological sciences. So, but I don't know. I mean, again, she must have a very dangerous mental model in how she looks at uh, South African things and how she thinks about South African things. And I think Sean, you are a South African. You are a native of a, of a bizarre city called Cape Town. You should explain to us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. I, wanna, I, I know, Grief, that you, that I, I think Will has to go. This is live, people, so we're just acknowledging things as they happen to us. Will, Will may have to go. And I've got, there is some questions actually funny. The whole world suddenly woke up on the live, on the YouTube <laughs> channel, and they have questions for Grief. And I'm hoping that Grief can stay for like two more minutes. Um, which yeah. is, I think, also when we are gonna, when our thing's gonna run out. But I want to just ask Grief to answer this for me. What is it about South Africa, a country in which the majority of the people are black? It is obvious that South Africa reproduces racial inequalities. Yes, there are class inequalities too, because black people are also now in the state. Black people are also now becoming middle class. In fact, I think a stat gets quoted that the size of the black middle class, numerically. Is, is is almost the size of the total white population. 
But what is it about South Africa? And again, this is not necessarily, I think it's linked to the Natras and what's happening around Natras in South Africa. But why is it in South Africa that you can say um, really like, we'll call it whack things, other people might say objectionable stuff, and somehow you survive in South Africa. Like, what is what is that about South Africa in a country in which black people are majority, in which there's all these debates about decolonization, in which black people uh, run the state, etc. Why can why wh why do people get away with stuff in South Africa? I mean, you this is a long answer. Maybe there's a whole program, <laughs> but just give take your stab at that. And if we'll want to respond to that also quickly, and then I want to take then I just want to ask you what are people asking us on live so that you can also go and be with your family. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot, because uh, we have a son who's five weeks old. <laughs> I can hear him crying. He's asking for his papa. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, you're right, Sean. I mean, South Africa is strange. I mean, it's a strange place. You know, it's like a really strange place. Um, but I think it's like uh, 300 years of subjugation and uh, dispossession and all these things that we're sort of were living in the shadows of that history. I mean, the professoriate hasn't, even though it's a black majority country, the pro professoriate in many of the, what may be called the elite South African universities, doesn't look any diff, doesn't look sort of fundamentally different to what it looked prior to, before 1994, right? And because of all these kinds of things, and even if it does cosmetically look different, the structures are still very much entrenched. I mean, uh, I don't know if folks have had an opportunity to read uh, the report on the death of uh, Professor Bongani Mayosi, who was a very big, a very well accomplished uh, South African uh, uh, medical professor. And if you read that report, there's a chapter in that report on the institutional culture and the experience of being a black academic at UCT. And you'll You're see- You're talking about- Yes, correct, correct. Uh, and you will Just see that- Correct. Yes, exactly. The the the, the dean of the ex dean of the medical school committed suicide. I mean, if you read that report, you will see in there that uh, it does say that the culture hasn't changed, even though there's some cosmetic change in terms of how who who is now in leadership positions. The culture hasn't changed. Uh, I mean, the professoriate is still very white. The Senate must be still very white. So in these kinds of environments, I mean, you could get away with saying you know. Nonsense. I mean, I'm I'm even surprised that the South African Journal of Science has got a special issue on this crazy article, right? This would never happen. If I had said something boneheaded like that, Sean, A, there would have been a retraction. I would have been sanctioned. But now the South African Journal of, Econo of Science is legitimizing this entire article by dedicating a special issue to it. I mean, this is... This is crazy. You should explain this to me, Sean. I'm just but a visitor in your in in your city now. <laughs> it is. I, it is. Okay, it is. Well, you got that word <laughs> Well, you could. This is a serious topic. I know. So I'm laughing yeah. because of, the, of how absurd it is. Will it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a question. I mean, I thought that's a that's a great answer. I can't. I can't answer the question either. So like Gree, I'm going to throw it back to you, Sean. This is, this is your native city, so you got to tell us what's happening there. I mean, um, yeah, it's crazy to just see the extent. I think we're losing which, world there, Lopes. Um, I think it's crazy yeah. to see the institutional um, protection that's um, being... I don't know. I think Will, Will sort of cutting uh, out. Is, uh, this, is, this is live. So live comes with problems. Are you still there, Grieve? Yeah, I'm still here, Sean. Here. Yeah, Will is yeah. still here. I can hear him. Yeah, you can hear. I think Grieve can hear me fine. Um, 
But anyway, I don't have anything to say other than, I mean, I completely concur with your thoughts, Grieve. Um, yeah, truly. Um, I think at this point, I should I should head out. So I just want to say, Grieve, thank you so much for being on the show. And we should continue the conversation. Uh, and please come on again. Thanks, Will. And I enjoy your, I enjoy your writing, man. I read your okay, writing. Dispatches from Joburg. I like them. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate yeah. it. Yes, yeah. I don't want to break up. I don't want to break up this mutual, uh, <laughs> what do you call it, recognition society. But that's beautiful to see. But I, because I know we're running out of time, I'm just gonna throw in. Let me throw in one question. I'm combining a question by one of the viewers, and then you can go. And it goes back to something that I think um, Will was alluding to, which is like we've identified the problem, but and and I think you were sort of alluding to that, like you know. But what what can we recommend? So here's a question by Anakwa. Uh, Dwamena, who's also a contributing editor, happens to be a contributing editor at Africa's Country, and he's watching. And he's asking, if you think about sort of like your sort of like, you know, so what do we do? He's asking like, can we renegotiate with the EU, for instance, about agricultural subsidies when they are tweeting Black Lives Matter? So that kind of, what you know, should we force these people who are saying they 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 just paying lip service or like what do we do? What do we do with that situation? Did you get the question? I mean, I sort of got the question. I think it's a lot to do with these debates that are happening on Twitter, for example, about it's not enough to just tweet Black Lives Matter without changing the structures, right? So it's not enough to say Black Lives Matter or you know I'm going to add a few Black people to my course curriculum or whatever without really changing the structures through which these inequalities about race, about place are being perpetuated. So I, I think, yeah, first of all, I should shout out to Anakwa, great guy, um, spent a memorable afternoon. My wife and I spent a memorable afternoon with him in New York one day. So he took us around Harlem and we had a great time there. So I, I you're right. I mean, Anakwa, I don't know how do we renegotiate. I think it goes back to the old Kwame Nkrumah idea, your uh, forefather, Anakwa, uh, to say we need to organize ourselves. You know, like any successful campaign, we need to sort of organize ourselves as a continent. We need to be able to speak the old boring things or speak as one voice, be much more organized. You know, there's 1.2 billion of us. So we can, if we got our act together, there's a lot that we can achieve. Um, just like folks now uh, in the U.S., a lot of people who've been on the receiving end of racial in inequities have gotten organized and there's, and there's some traction for the first time. There's some movement. So we should try to replicate some of those models of organizing as a continent yeah um i think yeah we should we should let grief grow his son he's got a new son um and and we should he's got two children so and he's got a little baby so we should we should let him go but i will say and i'm going to quote before we go grief thanks for coming this is wonderful i have to shout out bandile and gidi who said we can all hear will fine I think your connection, Sean, is the faulty one. Um, <laughs> that that is the truth. He spoke the truth. I apologize for for um, we still like going through our like beta phase. We're trying to figure out all the glitches, but um, it's people like Grieve that makes the show. And Grieve, this was great. Thanks for coming. I I, I knew this was going to be fun, and and I hope we didn't like get you in trouble at work. Um, Look, um, if but I yeah, we South Africa, as we said. <laughs> if I lose a job, sure, now just have to become a full staff writer at Africa as a country, you know, and make a living that way. So let's see. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's with that, with that, I want to say thank you to Will Shoki, Grief Chalwa, Sean Jacobs here. 
and our producer, um, Antoinette Engel. Um, we'll see you. Be back here next week, same time. We do this program every week at, uh, I said, 12 p.m. Uh, New York time, uh, 6 o'clock Johannesburg, Cape Town with Grievies, uh, 7 o'clock Nairobi time, 5 o'clock Lagos time. Come back and be with us next week. And thank you for everybody who listened and who, who was watching, sorry, mostly, and who put comments down. We really appreciate you. And, and go tell all your friends to come back and watch us next week. So bye.